We study God's Word together. We worship together. We fellowship together. We serve together. And so will you come? Will you come do this with us? Will you come and help the First Baptist Church of San Antonio be better together? I'll tell you what. It is good to be with you this morning. It's good to have the privilege of preaching out of Acts this morning in the midst of this series that we're calling Better Together. My name is Danny Panter, one of the associate pastors here on staff, normally preaching in our band-led worship gathering. But here I'm with you today while Pastor Chris is preaching in Lagos, and it is good to be with you. I hope you believe that. It's good to be here. And so as I mentioned, we have been in this series now four weeks that we have called Better Together. Essentially, we're asking the question every week, what does it mean to be the church in all the ways in which it is designed to be connected? And in what ways ought we to maximize those connections so that we can fulfill God's calling as his local church right here in the center and heart of San Antonio. We want to know what it means. What does it really mean to be better together? We started off this series really looking at three main metaphors that the New Testament provides for us through the teaching of Paul. First, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we saw Paul correcting the church in Corinth and said, no, listen, can I remind you that although you are unique uh, in the ways that God has gifted you, you are bound together much like the human body is bound together. You all need each other to grow up in Jesus. We're like the body. And he said, also, can I remind you um, that you're also like the bride of Christ? Uh, You're like the bride of Christ. When the son receives his bride, the church, uh, she is clothed in his righteousness. God doesn't just see a bunch of individuals. He sees them together as his bride. And then the family of God in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about then when we live by the power of the Spirit of God in faith, the Holy Spirit does this rewiring, gives us a new spiritual DNA whereby we become sons and daughters of God. He says, church, you're a family, co-heirs with Christ. And so the New Testament provides us these metaphors that presents a picture of our connectedness. And that's what we're trying to rediscover. What does it mean to be connected as his church? And what advantage do we have in that connectedness? This morning is no different. Uh, We want to consider what does it mean to be better together in our kingdom gatherings. Last week, we asked the question, what does it mean to be better together as we stand on the authority, beauty, and holiness of God's word? This morning, we're asking, what does it mean to be better together in our gatherings, much like this and other ways that we gather as his local church? So with that said, let's stand together and read God's word with one another. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe 
and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We ask that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and feet to obey it. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Luke, the author of Acts, essentially is chronicling for us the gospel at work through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling his apostles, asking the question, When the Holy Spirit descends and gets a hold of his apostles and these earliest believers, what happens? What happens when that takes place? How does God give shape to those kind of people? And so we know in the first two chapters, the earliest chapters of Acts, a lot goes down. The Holy Spirit comes as promised. Jesus said the Holy Spirit, the counselor, will come. And we see the filling and equipping of his apostles and others who loved and followed Jesus in that moment created a ruckus. Others were amazed and bewildered by the commotion the Holy Spirit caused in that room when the Holy Spirit descended, even wondering if the apostles were drunk. Peter said, no way. Something entirely incredible is happening Thousands gathered in curiosity and amazement, and Peter stood in that moment and began to preach the word of God from the law and the prophets, pointing to the promise fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus, the one you crucified, and the one who rose from the grave, indeed is the promised Messiah. The word of God tells us that they were cut to the quick. And they put their faith in Jesus, this one who would usher in a brand new kingdom. Not a political one, but a spiritual one where he would transform the hearts of men, women, and children. And Peter said, believe in that. Believe in Jesus. And they did. They responded in faith and repentance by the thousands. The scripture tells us that 3,000 believed and were baptized in that day. Wow. The church was born by the power of the promise spirit giving faith to those who would believe. So in this text, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, I simply want to make three observations about the nature of what was happening immediately following this incredible response of faith and repentance in Jesus. I want to make the observation of what is it, what happens when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of people and the church is born? What goes on? And we see that in this text. In verse 42, 
it says, speaking of those who came to faith in Christ, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It's interesting that the immediate aftermath of this kind of radical Holy Spirit faith is described in their togetherness. There's a lot of words used here. They, uh, they together, all throughout this text, everyone and all those. This text describes their togetherness. It doesn't say that each one of them went to their own home and mapped out a quiet time schedule for the next six months. It doesn't say that each one of them went home to their own prayer closets and prayed. It doesn't say they went and isolated themselves to meditate over the profoundness of the descending of the Spirit of God. Now, they may have done all of those things. But what Luke chronicles for us is what they did immediately following new faith in Christ the Messiah is that they gathered. They came together. They came together doing primarily two things, as Scripture tells us. They came to hear the apostles teach, and that's not surprising. They came to gather around the apostles. It was they who had walked and lived and watched and heard Jesus, who, who were indwelt with the Spirit of God to teach them the sayings and life of Christ. If they wanted to know what was next, by all means, they should go to the apostles. If they wanted to learn more about Jesus, by all means, they had to gather in one place to receive teaching from the apostles. But not only the Word of God says they also were in fellowship together. They were in fellowship together. They were devoted to both receiving the teaching of the apostles together and they were devoted to fellowship. And everything following kind of flows out of those two things, teaching and fellowship. Now, what Luke doesn't mean by gathering our fellowship is this. Simply that there were a lot of people in one place, in one room. He's talking about something altogether different here. You know, I can be in a room with a lot of people and not be together with them, right? Y'all just ignore that. I don't need it anyway. Um, I can be in a room with a lot of people and, and not be together with them. I mean, just a few weeks ago and month after month, we've hosted the San Antonio Symphony in this place, and we've had droves of people fill these pews, and they've been recipients of an incredible performance. But I guarantee you, they, they weren't together. Uh, they didn't necessarily know the person next to their left or to the right, nor were they probably concerned about the person to the left or to the right of them. They were there for themselves. They were in one room, 1,200 of them, but they weren't together. Listen, I can go to a doctor's office, and I can sit there and be surrounded by lots of different people who have various different needs. I don't know what their needs are, and to be frank, I'm really not all that interested in the ailments of other people when I go to the doctor's office. I'm there primarily about my own needs and my own concerns. I can be with other people in a room, but not together with them. That's not what Luke's chronicling here. He's talking about gathering under the apostles' teaching and fellowship, a different kind of gathering that yields to togetherness. In particular, kingdom togetherness. 
They were gathering together in a sense of unity and solidarity. We see that even throughout the text, and I'll just point these out quickly, and then go to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, which explains it even further. Verse 46 says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. They had all things in common. There's this, this togetherness here that, Luke captures for us, and then it's further explained in Acts 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. How beautiful is that? They were in the same place together when they gathered, but they expressed kingdom togetherness, not just coming as individuals all in one room, but they were together. They were of one mind and one heart and soul and unity and solidarity. So when Luke talks about gathering and fellowship, that's what he means. All on the same page together. So what does that kind of togetherness really mean? What are they together around? That's a better question. If they're on the same page and they have unity of mind, what do they have unity of mind about? Verses 43 through 44. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. They were enamored by what God was doing through his apostles with a capital A. They couldn't get enough of the display of God's spirit at work. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. There's that picture of unity and solidarity, one soul, one heart. What were they bound together for? You know, it's interesting that um, as far as we can tell, no one was really instructed to gather like this. Uh, no, there was no like, okay, this is what you do next. It just happened. Under the leadership and the power of the Holy Spirit, they just began to gather. And something else began to happen as they began to fellowship with one another, this kingdom togetherness. There, there was a brand new orientation for their life. They adopted a brand new perspective on what living was like and what even the kingdom of God was like. And their whole being, their whole rhythms began to orient around this kingdom-mindedness. And so when we say, when, when Luke talks about this unity and this all things in common and one heart and one soul, what were they bound together around? Kingdom-mindedness. Their hearts were caught up in this new profound perspective of the kingdom coming to fruition through Jesus. That the Messiah had come and everything changes. It's not business as usual. And they literally were on the same page together that all of life has changed. And we can't just go on like it was from marketplace to marketplace, home to home. Uh, we can't just do things like we normally do them. Everything changes. And so when they gathered together, they gathered together with a spirit-led purpose in their togetherness. Kingdom-mindedness. The scripture says they gathered in the temple every day for worship, for teaching, for prayer. They gathered in homes to share meals together. They also gathered in those same homes to commemorate through the Lord's Supper what Christ has done on the cross. They gathered, and when they did, it was 
in their solidarity that the kingdom had come and that they had to shape their life differently. The truth is, if we're honest with one another, there is a strong pull and temptation to think of the church far differently than the kingdom-mindedness that's expressed here. You all know exactly what I'm talking about. For many, that kind of kingdom-mindedness has been lost or we're tempted to, to lose that kingdom-mindedness. The church quickly can become just a place that we go to rather than a people it can become a room full of individuals deciding if going to church is the best offer for the morning or the afternoon or the day. I mean, the reality is we are surrounded, both you and I and families and individuals alike, with competing offers all the time. And we're always having to ask ourselves, am I going to give my time to that? Am I going to invest in that? Am I going to give my energy to that? Is it, is it worth my while to give myself, to give that time, that hour, that two hours to that thing? There's always something competing for your energy and time. That's never going to change. But when you read these verses... When we read these verses, it's clear that the church that gathered and why they gathered had little to do with questions like those. Is it worth my time? Is it worth my energy? Should I rearrange my schedule? Should I give up this only day that I have just to be at peace and not be pulled a thousand different directions? They weren't asking questions like that. For them, it was a matter of need. It was a matter of identity. This is who we are now. We're people of the kingdom. We're followers of Christ, the way. It was a matter of kingdom-mindedness, that God was up to something brand new, and he was doing something among these new 3,000 believers that we can't stop, and we can't wait to find out what's next. So they gathered together with a great sense of anticipation that we're a part of something far bigger than ourselves and we can't miss this. They couldn't help but be together. This is the kind of thing that Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17, verses 21, or 20 through 23. Lord, may they be one as we are one. And, and when they become one, Lord, the, the world's going to see that you sent me and love them. This was, this was Jesus' prayer coming to life and their commitment to kingdom-mindedness when they gathered together. They were asking different questions like, oh, what does God desire from us now? What is God going to do next? How can we join God in what he's doing? And by all means, how can we bless one another in this great venture of the kingdom of God? Maybe God needs me to bless my neighbor. Maybe that's why I should go and gather. New questions. Listen, when, when our perspective and orientation changes about the gatherings, when the church comes together in kingdom-mindedness, the gathering itself changes. It takes on a brand new life and purpose. That's what we see in these verses. 
Well, it's clear that um, out of this just Holy Spirit-led kingdom togetherness, around this kingdom-mindedness, that there was also kingdom fruitfulness. Read these verses with me. This is verses 45 and 47. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Clearly, there was fruit with this kind of new perspective and orientation, this kingdom-mindedness. Quickly, um, they were generous to those in need with this kingdom orientation, this kingdom perspective. They began to, to realize that the resources and talents and gifts and time that they had belonged to the kingdom of God. Not to mention, they probably thought Jesus was coming back in two or three weeks. They said, all of this, what's the point of all of this but to serve and advance the kingdom? What's the point of all of this if not to use to bless those who are in need around us? You see how kingdom-mindedness changes everything? Life becomes less about storing up wealth and more about how can How can God use what he's given me to bless and serve those in need around me? That's what happened when they gathered. They wore that kind of kingdom-minded lens. What do they need? They weren't oblivious of their neighbor. They loved one another. They had one heart, one soul, and they said, man, if I have it, if I can get it, I... I will meet that need because my life and resources are about the kingdom, not about my personal gain. It says they worshiped in the temple. They worshiped in the temple of every day. That wasn't even normal for faithful Jewish practitioners. They went to the temple every day. Why? I imagine they went to the temple every day. Why? In those outer courts because they couldn't get enough of talking about Jesus, telling people, other folks in the, in the temple courts, hey, listen, do you know that the Messiah has come? That guy we put on the cross, he rose from the grave, and he indeed is the promised one. I imagine they bore witness when they went to the temple courts. That was the fruit of kingdom-mindedness, gospel generosity, and gospel witness. The scripture says that they gained favor of all the people. Listen, this new found faith and indwelling of the Spirit of God and this kingdom mindedness couldn't help but be visible. They couldn't hide a thing. And I think there was an incredible attractiveness to the people that were witness to what God was doing among this 3,000 plus people. Can you imagine? People that didn't even know each other in different classes likely who were profoundly changed in a moment and their life was going one way and then it's going a next and it, they started meeting in each other's homes, gathering every day in the temple of courts and it was out there for everyone to see and I imagine they gained favor of all the people because it was they, it, they couldn't hide what God was doing in them. And the good that was being done. Now, that's not prescriptive. In other words, if we just add up all these elements of gathering that, man, we're just going to find favor in the world right now. It didn't take long from favor to turn into opposition. That's another sermon. But very quickly, they had people opposing them. But for now, people were like, wow, what's going on? 
And then the Lord added to their number every single day. Again, this is not a formula for church growth. Gosh, if we just gather in this way, people weren't thinking about that. They couldn't help but gather together in their kingdom-mindedness. And God just said, this is how the church is going to grow because I'm going to do it through my people in their kingdom-mindedness, their kingdom gatherings. A few questions for us, for myself. What if, what if after a long day at work on my drive home, I asked these kinds of questions? Do I really have the energy? Do I really have the time? I mean, what really am I going to get from going home? I'm exhausted. And I know I'm just going to get home and have to go back to work. I've got to cook dinner. I've got to clean the kitchen. I've got to help with homework, maybe. Is it really worth my time and energy? Surely me coming home once or twice a week is enough. I mean, I've given them Monday and Tuesday. Isn't that enough? I mean, when else am I going to work on my golf game or get that massage or do this or read those books or... I mean, all the other hours of my day are spoken for. Certainly God understands that I just crave some time that I can just have for myself. Should I really drive home today? (laughs) We would never seriously consider those kinds of questions. You want to know why? Because a family is better together. I have a responsibility to come home each and every day because it's who I am. It's my identity as a husband and a father, and it brings me joy and gladness to be around my wife and my kids. Every time my daughter walks through the front door after a late night at work, it gives me joy. Every time my wife walks into the kitchen, it gives me joy and vice versa. Not to mention my wife and my girls need me. I have on my my uh, wrist a bracelet that my middle daughter made me, and it says, girl dad, because that's who I am. And God's commissioned me to raise godly girls. They need me. They need me. I come home because we're better together. If I don't come home, if I don't come home, the results are dire. Fruitless. And we see the ramifications of that all over our world. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. The writer of Hebrews says this to us in contemplating our confession together as believers and the gathering. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, that kingdom-mindedness without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In other words, he's coming back. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, kingdom fruitfulness, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Will we change our orientation? 
Will we hold on to kingdom-mindedness, that perspective that changes our rhythms and life, that says to us over and over again, then by all means our gatherings are worth it. Will that be us increasingly? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace towards us. You are gracious, Lord. We are tempted in a thousand different ways. We're tempted to make our gatherings primarily about ourselves. Forgive us of that, Lord, and may we stand firm and be led by your Spirit to be committed to one another, knowing that we are better together for it. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.